0: Here we are, October the 12th, 2014, lecture discussion number 172 on the book of Romans and other outer parts currently unknown, but uh, we'll all wrap it up here eventually. Before we start today, I got a letter from Dr. Peter in uh, Adelaide, Australia. He says this, Hi Steve, yes, Australian spelling in the title. Is, uh, so you learn how to spell Australian when Peter, Dr. Peter writes me. I just wanted to say that last Sunday I was at the usual sermon at my local church, not one I visit, but only, only occasionally, I think. And I heard one of the best sermons in years, but the pastor was looking a bit stressed. After about 20 seconds, it was clear why. He had obviously received a lot of criticism during the preparation of his sermon. I told him afterwards it was the most God-honoring sermon I had heard in years and that it had to be closer to the truth than anything else I had heard because everything else that I assume that he's talking about this man's presentations was fluffy and about me. In other words, everything was me-centered. If you were here last week, uh, we covered some of that a little bit. Instead of Christ-centered, it is Congregationally centered. I said rather obliquely that if God is on every page, the most accurate interpretation must therefore have him in the center. It was if, as if a light bulb went on. The pastor's face lit up and he gave me the biggest hug I have ever had in years. He left with a bounce in his step. Keep up the good work, Pastor Steve. I'm pleased I don't have the constant griping, et cetera, that pastors and their assistants have to contend with. And then he says this, that you'll have to come up and read afterwards. because I, he, he tells me not to do something that you would find interesting. I don't know if you say that in Alaska, but it's very common to say it in Australia. And Dr. Peter, you know it's not common. I can't get away with saying it uh, over the Internet, but thank you uh, very much for your kind words. What he is saying is, is that... A pastor, uh, began to say that Christ is God. And it was a distressing event for him. And he took tremendous heat for it. And Supper Dave and I, Dave is, as you know, putting a lot of stuff on sermon audio and having a great deal of fun, and our hate mail is ratcheting up. Here it comes. Because the more people hear uh, that Christ is God, the relationship proportionally and hate mail is directly impacted and that's uh, that's how it goes and uh, there's nothing we can do we talked today earlier today about uh these are not going to be popular lectures he's putting on he's putting on Psalm 22 fourth saying on the cross not going to be well received we're going to take a a, a beating for them lots of criticism I alienate literally nine tenths of Christendom with those lectures, and I know it—just how it is. So it's nice every now and then to hear that somebody in Australia is throwing a rock in the in the at the parade. So uh, good for him. Okay, just wanted to read that because I think you'll find eventually uh, why it fits into today's lecture. Uh, when we ended uh, the October 5th lecture, uh, number 171, we had finally engaged to Matthew 25. Let me put that on the board. Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So finally I got there. That is the, uh, as you know, that is uh, God's parable of the talents, a lesson that is so complex. I know that no one has ever completely solved it. Uh, I have many, many books, as you're aware. I read them all, especially when I get into a subject like this, to see if anybody has, have a more complete position, and there never is. Everyone gets a little piece, good for them, but no one is even close to solving the parable of the talents. Once again, that proves the authorship of scripture as well as the person of Christ. The depth is so much, so extraordinary that no human being could have written that parable, and that is obvious as you begin to study it. And if I had a dollar, by the way, for every time I have read or heard someone describe Jesus Christ this way, they call him a great teacher. Oh, If I had a dollar for that cliffside, we'd be meeting in five-star hotels, because we would own a half-dozen of them, and we'd have a different one every Sunday in a different state, and we'd be able to transport the congregation here, which would be fun. But you'll hear that a lot. Jesus Christ is a great teacher, they'll say. Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, his omniscience, by definition, then necessitates that he would devise perfect parables. He would have perfect teaching. Being God, he will have purely perfect lessons. Perfect in design, exact for, the, for his intended audience. I want to scream and simultaneously retch. Screaming retching. Every time I hear somebody, mostly the professional uh, pastoriate, what, but you hear it all the time. They marvel at how Christ was, and they describe him this way. Christ is one of the best teachers in all of history. As if it were surprising. He's the creator of history. History is time, ultimately. He's the one who made time. Of course he can teach. He's pretty good at Scrabble, too. He's, he's the author of language. When you say things like, well, he's a good teacher. Christ was a good teacher. First you put him in the past tense and then you lowered him to the level of Maybe what? Your fifth grade math teacher or something? It's silly. It's both frustrating and astonishing to witness the level of illiteracy from pastors, especially with respect to the deity of Christ. That's why I read Peter's, Dr. Peter's letter. The pastor should know this one truth. And that is, all doctrine flows from the deity of Christ. If you don't have the deity of Christ correct, or as good as you can possibly, and everybody makes mistakes, makes mistakes, and we all say things that are, uh, that are wrong about the deity of Christ, but if you have the deity of Christ completely messed up, all the doctrine flows from that, and everything you think from therefore on will be a mess. And, And when I'm officially judged insane, that will be the cause of it, having to listen to that kind of stuff for as long as I can remember. And I, I, I'm, I won't be, my, and I said when I'm officially judged insane, notice how I put that. It's not official yet, but I know they're working on it. Okay, we need to reread Matthew 25, 14, 330. Uh, refresh and co- connect those who uh, missed maybe last week or missed um, these lectures on these subjects before and have no familiarity, so let's go ahead and do it. We'll read it really fast and we'll make uh, uh, some marks on the board here behind me that might be appropriate. So, Matthew 25:14. Ready? Here we go. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a four country. Now, the reason that the kingdom of heaven is in italics is because it's referring back to 25, 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. In other words, the person who uh, tra- transcribed or translated your version uh, thought it was necessary to remind you that the context is uh, verse twenty five one. So he put it in italics and added it there for you, or that group did. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own slaves and delivered his goods to them. So the emphasis is, they're his slaves, he's calling them, and it's his goods. So, And to, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Now, who's telling the story? God is telling the story. And likewise, he who had received two gained, two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you have delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look! I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you have not sown. Gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And went and hid your talent in the ground. Look. There you have what's yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, our slave. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed. You knew that? Should be a question mark after seed, by the way. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has more, who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable slave until the outer darkness Into the outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, there you go. As usual, the accustomed disclaimer applies. And that being that there is no possible way we will definitively reach conclusions, answers on all of the questions present in this parable. There's way too many questions. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. If not thousands and thousands. The the accustomed disclaimer is applicable to all of God's parables. They're all the same. There's so many questions. A lifetime could be spent on one parable in Scripture. And of course, as well as all of God's Scripture is that way. That's one of the biggest does of all the does. So lower your expectations. But hopefully we'll make a measurable dent. We'll take a run at it head first and we'll hopefully we dent something. But the first thing we'll do is uh thanks to Adina she sent me a thing that said list maker's going to list. So we're going to list. It, it is helpful sometimes for you to do this because it's valuable. I, I started at 1A, you'll notice because I realized I left it out. It's helpful because uh, when you see it all in a spreadsheet type form, you can look at that at the order of it and notice how important the order is and also see what is emphasized. The kingdom of heaven, that's how we begin. Again, that is uh, 25 one. Now when I have a kingdom of heaven, what's my first problem? I got to know which kingdom he's talking about because how many kingdoms does God reference in the scripture? He has five of them. He has the uh, universal or the eternal kingdom. He has the spiritual kingdom. He has the theocratic kingdom. He has the messianic kingdom. And he has the mystery kingdom. So which one is he talking about here? To help you with those definitions, the universal or the eternal kingdom, that is everything, including time. It is timeless in the sense that it it is all of everything. The spiritual kingdom is the believer's some would call that uh, the church but the church is actually the mystery kingdom the theocratic kingdom is the nation of israel and the messianic or the millennial kingdom is the thousand year period so there's five different kingdoms which one is he talking about here which one is the reference so you have to start out immediately knowing which kingdom is being discussed and then he goes on to say a man comes he's traveling And he is coming a long way. So who's the man? It's obvious that is God. And his he's coming to his own servants or his own slaves. Where are we in the story? That's us. We're the slaves. Sorry. Not really. Get used to it. Know your place. People don't like it when I tell them that they are God's property, that he owns them. But he does. Very important to know that. We'll get into that next week. Uh, and then he is bringing his goods, his property. He is bringing stuff that he owns. Property, got it. Very important that you know that it's his He emphasizes that right off the bat, doesn't he? Uh, And to one person, one of his slaves, he gives five talents. Uh, To one of his slaves, he gives two talents. And to one of his slaves, he gives one talent. Ask why. And he does it, he says, according to their ability according to ability so i hope you're asking all the questions already there's uh, there's probably 50 questions just right in 4 5 6 and 7 and after he does that it says immediately he leaves And then this trading occurs. And uh, what happens is we have five gets five and two gets two. But one, the guy that was given the one, he digs and he hides. So he dug a hole and he hid his talent. And after a long time, what's the obvious question there? How long is a long time? Yes, God comes, God gives stuff that is His property, and God immediately leaves, and then He waits a long time. People get mad at God because He seems to be waiting a long time. Well, He's telling you that He's waiting a long time, and why does He wait a long time? Because He's patient. You all are in existence because he did. Everybody in favor of your own existence, signify by way. Yes, you have existence because he waited a long time. You could say, "Well, he waited for me," because that's what he did, didn't he? And so, after a long time, he comes to settle. We have accounting. So number 13 and this uh and they all come by the way everybody comes So we have thir- item number 13 for those of you on the internet trying to keep track of what I'm doing here And the verse says Lord you gave me and I have gained look so you gave There is recognition that God gave it to him. He says, look, you gave it to me. I have gained. Look at what I have gained. So there's this gain, this recognition, um, the observation, if you will, at least the acknowledgement that he knew that God had given it to him. That's very important. How did you get your salvation? God gave it to you, and boy, you better understand that. If you think you did something to get it, you're so far in the ditch, it can't help you. You don't have a rope that long. don't have a backhoe. might need us a helicopter, maybe a helicopter pilot. Where could we find one of those? Oh, there's one. Point is, is you better understand how you got your salvation. If you break down there, you're going to break everywhere. And he says, if you were here last week, this wonderful phrase, well done, uh, good. Notice he separates good and faithful. Well done, good, faithful. You'll be a ruler because you, because you did well with this little tiny thing. What is this little tiny thing? You did well, but it's a little tiny thing. You're going to be a ruler, and you get to enter into the joy of the Lord. So, those five things. Well done, good. Faithful ruler, enter. Few things contrasted to many things. So, when God looks at what you're doing on this earth, what does he call it? Few things. And then the second guy, I don't have room to put it all on there, so I'm just going to run through it. You gave me two, I have gained two. Look. And God responds to him exactly the same way. That's so important. I'll put number two. 17 is this exactness. In other words, the first guy got five, second guy got two. They both received the exact same statement from God. Same response. And now the wicked one comes, and he comes last. So there's an order. I got the five guy first, the two guys second, and the one guy third. What's being taught there? That order is important. Who is that? What other order is like that in Scripture? Let me help you out. How many resurrections are there in Scripture? There's five of them. And you have to know the order. We're given the order. That'll help you run off into that lifetime of study. Ah. But the wicked one now comes last. And, and he says, Lord, I knew you to be evil, a hard man reaping and sowing and scattering seed that you don't have any right to. You're a thief. You're stealing what other people are doing. I'm afraid of you. So far, how many lies do we have? A whole bunch. Do you think he's afraid? So I hid your talent in the ground. Look, you take it. What's missing in his statement? Contrast his statement between the others. There is no you gave, is there? You delivered to me five talents. Not there in the third guy. And God says to him, Christ says to him, notice that's the same thing, right? Understand that. You wicked, lazy slave, God says. You knew? Did you really know? That I steal and reap and sow and gather and scattered seed that's not mine. Everything that Christ says to there, there is a rhetorical. The no is implied. And then he says to him, "You ought to have just given the money to bankers." And that is an amazing thing he says. Take the uh, my and then the interest issue is brought up, and then take the talent from the one and give it to the five. Who takes the talent, by the way? Who gets involved and does that? Somebody's there that's going to take the talent from him and give it to the five. What's your choices? It could be the two. It could be whomever he came with. And so this principle is stated now at the end. Everyone who has, more will be given from him who does not have even what he has. Now, that's Interesting. If he doesn't have anything, even what he has, what is the difference? What does that mean? We'll be taken. And the wicked slave is cast into outer darkness in this weeping, gnashing of teeth. Um furnace of fire when you compare that to Matthew thirteen, forty two. Okay, now I have a note to read uh, twenty five thirty one through thirty four. So let's go back there and do that. Let's go to there and do that. Sorry. When the Son of Man comes... So after that parable comes this. That's my reason for reading it to you. So that you begin to start going on the outside and the inside of these things. On the, on the uh, what comes before, what comes after. This is what Christ uh, decides as omniscient God. What should come after this statement, this parable that he made of the three slaves and the talents. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on His left Then the king will... Say to those on his right hand, come you, blessed my father, inherit, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay, almost the same language, isn't it? It's almost like, well done, good faithful ruler, enter into the joy of your Lord. So clearly I have a sheep goat issue now to deal with. Because that tells you when this is all happening. The judgment of the sheep and goats. Come you blessed equal, come you blessed is equal to enter into the joy of your Lord. So you see those two side by side. Clearly the parable of the talents has a sheep-goat context to it. So that helps you understand when Matthew 25, 14 through 30 are the, if you will, the ten virgins and also the wicked slave, there's more to get to here today, well, It's a big pile, I know. It helps you understand when it's going to occur, but for today we're just going to try to remain with the parable itself, and I'll attempt to identify the symbols and phrases as accurately as, as I can. But you need to know that those sheep and goats figure prominently. They loom overhead, for lack of a better way to express it. Okay, last Sunday I asked the easiest questions about this. Uh, and offered the basic of explanations that you might recall. I hope you do. A talent. What's a talent? A, a, a talent at the time that God gave this, at the time Christ spoke this, uh, was money. Gold. It was heavy. Weighed a lot. I said last week, by some estimates, it's 6,000 days wages. One talent. So you can figure out that this guy gets 30,000 days' wages. That's a lot. And it was thought to be gold. The talent was not and is not singing, uh, dancing, juggling, playing an instrument, or ventriloquism. It is not any of those. And that, unfortunately is the majority opinion. It, that is not defensible. You read somebody who evaluates this and they have talent as uh, some kind of ability to do a special thing, uh, that opinion cannot be defended by the text. It's not studied. To the contrary, it is thoughtless and foolish, and thus you can expect to hear and read it everywhere, because that's how it works. But uh, I'm digressing I have. I've been made well aware of this lately. Uh, I go into ranting idiot mode a lot more than I I thought. Uh, People have told me so recently. So uh, I realize it now. I'm going to try to uh, correct it. No, I'm not. That's not true. Because I have Helga out there now, and I need to maintain helga expects of me that's an inside joke from last week anyway it is imperatively imperative that we correctly identify the meaning the intendment uh of the symbol that is represented by the talent the gold weight this heavy heavy weight he comes it's his stuff he gives it to us and it's heavy and it's very valuable We have to figure out what talent is, so I'll go ahead, we have to define that correctly, and we have to define ability, because the talent is given based on the ability. What does ability mean in the story, or in the parable? Story doesn't do it justice, and we have to do that because what is the consequence of matthew twenty five fourteen through thirty The consequence is is that salvation is at stake. I have two that enter into the joy of the Lord and one that is cast, that is cast into utter darkness or outer darkness. two are saved one is lost. There is a great uh, i mean the, the stakes here are beyond anything life and death eternal life, eternal death are the stakes and obviously the two that entered into the joy of the Lord greatly valued the talent that they were given. The one, he buries it. He hid it. He hid the gold. If you want to think of it as gold, think of it that way. If I gave you a 6,000 days wages in gold, would you bury it in a, in a Folgers coffee can? What would you do with it? Well, we have to figure out what it. The talent symbolizes, and why is it that this man is described as burying what it is? What was his plan? Do not mistake, do not make the mistake of believing the wicked and lazy slave statement. Nothing about his statement is true. He's not afraid. He's not, uh, everything he did was part of a well-conceived, uh, plan. And it's uh, extraordinary uh, in a lot of areas, and we'll get to that as we go along. But the, the third slave, he lies to God again, and he's not afraid. So what was his re- reasoning for hiding the gold, if you will, to put it in a gold uh, context uh, to make the symbolism more physical? It may not be physical. It represents, gold represents it. Again, to repeat, knowing exactly what the talent represents is critical information, as well as knowing what ability represents. Critical information. Now, many of you have done really well here. You've talked to me about it, and a couple of you called me, and you said that you've figured this out. I said, well, great, that's fantastic. You can go ahead and take over in a couple of weeks. The job always remains open here. And I'm really thrilled for you. And you did it properly. You began to investigate already um, and look at the parable of the ten virgins. Because that's right before the parable of the talents. And you wanted to see if the oil of the five virgins and the fact that five did not have oil is the same as the talent. Is the oil and the talent the same thing? They both represent the same thing. That's the correct approach. Study first what comes before the parable of the three slaves and then also what comes immediately afterwards, which is the sheep and the goats. And not surprisingly, what comes before the ten virgins is Matthew twenty-four forty-five through 51. And guess what that's about? You shouldn't have to guess. You should already instinctively know. Guess what? There's an evil slave there. An evil slave who beats his fellow slaves. And one day the master comes. When the evil slave is not aware that the master is coming. And the master cuts the evil slave in two. And then he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the ending of the evil slave, which is right before the five and five virgins, is exactly the same as the last verse of the parable of the talents. That's not a coincidence. There's no coincidence in scripture. it's not insignificant. The ten virgins ends with this. He says to the five virgins, the ten virgins parable, Christ Christ says this to the five virgins. I do not know you. That is exactly the same as cast him, outer darkness, gnashing, weeping. When God says, I do not know you to someone, nothing is more grave or serious than that. That is as grave and as serious as God can, can be, frankly. to to one of his created. So Christ says, watch therefore, because you don't know the day or the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Watch therefore. Watching is very important now to all of these stories. Watch for what? Watch for who? Obviously, watch for Christ. But what are we watching for? What is he doing? The evil slave who was beating the other slaves was caught completely unaware of the master coming and again got, got himself cut in two. Separate it. When God separates you, that is not a good day. The five foolish virgins, if you haven't read the story, I hope you have, had no oil. And they were told, I do not know you by God. If you don't have any oil, he tells you, I do not know you. They also were surprised when Christ came. They they were denied entry. They did not enter into the joy, enter into the blessed reward. They didn't enter. And now we have this third parable in a row. This is the third. The Lord comes. Two have valued the gift of talent and one hid it. And the two entered And the other one was told effectively, I do not know you and cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing, right? So all three of those parables have almost the same theme and they, and they form a complete picture and putting them side by side and adding them together is going to give you the correct interpretation. Always avoid, if you can, when you're reading the Bible, always avoid making decisions absent of all the information. Don't select out the third parable of the talents and try to solve it outside of the others. If you do that, if you exclude the other two, that's that's going to be problematic, to say the least. It's fraught with peril and it's poor scholarship. Don't do it. Don't do it anywhere in Scripture. Okay? Now let's ask some obvious questions. Why did the third slave only get one talent? What was your first response to that? It has something to do with ability. We know that. Did you uh, did you think it wasn't fair? You say, well, he got five and he got two, I only got one. If you think that, you're in the ditch, call a tow truck. Let me ask another question about the third slave. It's got something to do with ability. Is the, is the third slave, I got a note here, when I taught this in high school, I always asked it this way, and I told myself, don't do it. I can't stop it now, because all I have, I don't have any short-term memory anymore, all I got is long-term memory, and it always makes me laugh. Because I got in trouble for it all the time, just as I get in trouble doing it now. Is the third slave stupid? Is that why he only got one talent? Is a smart guy? Give him five. This guy's not so bad. This is a dummy. Is that how you read it? Because to the contrary, the third slave is revealed. He says a lot. And what he says is cunning, extraordinarily wicked. It's at a very high level. He's not. He's what? Christ does not call him stupid. What does he call him? Wicked and lazy. Why does he call him that? Why are those two together? But the third slave is, as I said, he has a carefully crafted defense. And he presents this cunning defense without error in the sense he omits nothing. He gets it very precisely correct. So he has studied his defense. Every element of his defense is in the perfect place, the perfect order, and said as well as possible. That leads to the question, did he devise it? Is it his own, or did he just simply read it off a card? If, If it's not his own, who wrote it? In fact, I said last Sunday that the third slave is confident that he's outsmarted God, that God cannot answer this defense. There is no answer for what I say to you. He's absolutely confident that he's going to prevail. And if you're confident that God has no answer, then you are saying that God is not outside of time and God is not omniscient. That's what we call in the doctrinal business, oops, whole big wampum problem for you. God does have an answer. He can't help it by by his varied character and by his characteristics. The point is, though, that the third slave is highly capable, so ability has nothing to do Uh, No relationship to intelligence and no relationship to competence, um, which you'll find is commonly asserted. When you read about this story, that's the ones that you get the most. And talent, by the way, is uh, just to bring it up, is often represented to, to be a symbol for accountability or responsibility. That's the majority view. But that also, I submit, fails to withstand scrutiny. All three of these men are held to account. No one escapes accountability. All three are judged just as everyone is going to stand before the throne of Christ. And all three are given at least one talent. And all three are given time. And all three then stand before Christ. The talent is the property of God. It belongs to Christ. It's given and it can be hidden. And does that apply to responsibility? Accountability? It seems unlikely to me. I believe that uh, there's more to it than that. And I believe that the key uh, clue to this parable, parable is the excuse, if you will, the defense of the man who received the one talent. What's interesting also is the reward is perfectly exactly the same. This exactness. What should you do now? That you know that one thing. You know that five talents, two talents, same reward. What should you do? You should go about the Bible and find elsewhere where that is in Scripture, that truth. The amount of talents given is not a factor in the reward received, and it must be that way. Must that is one of God's fundamental principles, and we'll get to that next week. The third slave makes no attempt to gain more talents of gold. Why not? He says, why not? The first thing he does with it, he straight away buries it. He hides it. The, the response of, of the five guy and the two guy is to go and try to get more talents with it. Not the three guy. Or the one guy, I guess, sorry. Not the guy with one. His response, I've got the talent, the first thing I'm gonna do with it, it's very heavy, it's very valuable, I'm going to hide it. Take the, just take the, the allegory to the absurd for, to prove the point. I'm gonna go downtown Anchorage, um, in front of the, uh, establishments that make a lot of money providing intoxication. And I'm going to hand out 6,000 days' wages to everybody I see. Who's going to bury it? No one will bury it. Everyone will at least go spend it on themselves. How many people bury that? Don't, he, he? first thing he does with it is dig a hole and bury it. He doesn't buy anything with it. He doesn't share it with any of his friends. He doesn't improve himself in any way with it. He buries it. That's key. First thing he does, bury it. Hit it. So why does he hide it? And who's he hiding it from? So let's look closer at his reasoning. We'll read it again. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. What's the meaning of hard? You figure it out really fast. Is hard good? Is he saying I knew you to be a tough guy? No, he's saying I knew you to be a hard man. If it's not goodness, then what has what's left? Because you only got two choices. You're either good or what? Or you're wicked or you're evil. That's right. If it's not hard, then it's evil. Those are, again, the only choices. Christ is a hard man, he's saying. Christ is an evil man. The context is obvious. Christ is unfair. He's unjust. He's harsh. He's cruel. He's brutal. What he saying? Why? Why does he say that? What does he know that makes him have that opinion of Christ? What does he think he knows? I know you're evil, he says. "You're evil and I know it. By the way, that's not unlike today's typical atheist accusation, is it? It's absolutely customary for the atheists today to conjoin the fact of evil and physical suffering and then they disprove the existence of God with that. What I mean is that the argument is usually framed that the overwhelming evil in the world is either is evidence that there is no God, or that God is evil. Does that make sense? You run into that, you should by now. Somebody will say, look at all the suffering. That proves that God, there is no God. So they, the premise is, evil is proof that God does not exist. So the existence of evil is proof that God has no existence. That's the argument. Some are going to argue that God is just disinterested in his creation, are unequipped to overcome evil. And that's the same result. Those that argue that or argue such have not fully considered the natural inevitability of their premise. An indifferent God is likewise what? If he's indifferent, he doesn't care. If he doesn't care, what is he, good or evil. He's evil. So if you're indifferent, then you're evil. And if your detachment is not goodness. And if you're in if you have an inability, you create something, and then you have an inability uh, to keep it from disintegrating into suffering and evil, then what are you? Evil. Why did you create it if you could not contain it? If you had no authority over it. God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, and, and those three are interconnected. You hear me say that all the time. They're non-separable, that they're non-separatable as, uh, characteristics. They also begat omnibenevolence, which means that they cause pure, total goodness. It is impossible for God to be anything but pure and total good. So the third slave is on this predictably uh, well-worn path, following it. And he continues, he says, Reaping where you have not sown. You haven't sown. You're gathering where you have not scattered seed. What is reaping and sowing and gathering and harvesting? Uh, what is that in scripture? If Christ says to you that I sow, I gather, or I harvest, I scatter seed, I reap, what is he talking about? This guy is saying to God, to Christ, you do not scatter seed. You don't gather. You don't harvest. You don't reap. You don't do any of that. What's he saying? Those are all references to uh, salvation, aren't they? Christ is called the, calls himself the great sower. He is the savior. The saver and the savior. So the third slave, in effect, is saying, no. You do not save. You do not sow. You do not reap. You do not harvest. None of that. So what's the consequences then of that? That If we uh, concede the hypothetical there. If God does not save, then what? Is there anybody else who can save? Nobody else that can save. So if God can't save, no one can save. Only God can save. If God isn't saving, then what? None are saved, and if all are none are saved, what happens to us? Well, if that's either we're cast into our outer darkness, or uh, we all have annihilation, cessation. Cessation, by the way, of existence is the cornerstone of atheism. Why is sensation of existence the cornerstone of atheism? They love sensation of existence. Why do they want that? i asked that question thousands of times. But they do. And this third slave is saying that you don't save anybody. None are saved. You have a system of salvation by which no one is saved. You don't reap. You don't harvest. You don't sow. You don't gather. You don't do anything. It's all a lie. You're a liar, and you don't save anybody. What's that make God? Evil. Saying it right to his face. Atheism today says the same thing. There is no salvation. All there is is annihilation, cessation of existence. Why do they want that? And I've said many times, they want you to believe that. Why do they want you to believe that? Because if you believe that, then you are in despair and hopelessness and purposelessness. How is that an advantage to them? The third slave says salvation is a myth. God is not saving anybody. He has a system by which no one is saved. And because that's what he believes... He hid what he was given. He's saying that salvation is impossible. God can't save. It's not possible to save. What makes it impossible? And hopefully you see the free will construct construct, uh, of the third slave statement. Next week we'll deal with that. Notice now Christ's response. If you believe all that's true, if you believe I'm evil what he says to him, if you believe that I don't save anybody because I have a system of salvation that won't, that can't, that it's all a sadistic sadistic ruse, a hopeless process, a system of salvation that results in no one being saved, then he asks him the most amazing question. He says, why did you hide it then? I gave it to you and you believed that it was fruitless, foolishness, impossible, not occurring, why would you bury it, what I gave you? You see, I hope you do. I hope I presented it well enough that you see the power of the question. The third slave hid the gold talent because he knew the opposite of what he just said to Christ, didn't he? He knew... That he had to bury it, because what does it do? If you don't bury it, it saves people. I've got to bury it. And Christ said, if you knew I was evil, you really believed I was evil, and you really believed I had a system that didn't harvest, didn't gather, didn't sow, didn't reap, then why did you hide it? And therefore, he answers him, doesn't he? because the third slave knew that if it was not hidden that it would do exactly what Christ said it would do it would save people and the third slave desires that everyone perish no one, that's what the third slave wants. That's what the atheists want. They want everyone to perish. They say so. I, they'll say it to your face. All you have to do is ask them, do you want me to perish, to be annihilated, to cease to exist? They will say, yes. Why do you want that? But they desire. This third slave desires that everyone perish as he has chosen to perish. And God says about himself, as plain as he can, God desires that none perish. The wicked desire that all perish. The third slave hid the truth of salvation. He hid the solution to death. He hid the truth of life, of eternal life. If he really believed that God was evil and salvation was a lie, then just leave it. Why bury it? Blow it on the street. No, he goes to the effort. The lazy man goes to a lot of effort to hide the damage. He's got to work to do that. And God says you are wicked and you are lazy. And if you were not lazy, uh, or your laziness is overcome by your desire to hide the truth of life. Why bury something that you think is worthless? Why do you hate it so much? Christ says to him, "Why do you hate me so much, ultimately? Why do you, you lazy person, go to all of this energy your all whole life to make sure this was buried? Do you know that's happening today? There are people that know the truth about creation and they hide it they spend their whole lives hiding the truth of creation why did they do that it's happening all over the world people get call me up and they say oh yeah it's a big conspiracy yeah the truth of creation men devote their lives lifetimes to hiding and obscuring the truth of creation And if it's wrong and it's worthless why do you hide it why do you bury it just bring it out just show everybody let it let it light shine on it it's work it's effort to bury things why does a wicked lazy man bury something what motivates uh, what are the motives of these evil people okay next week we'll get to ability Everybody got a talent, even the evil. Everybody got something that was valuable and could save not only themselves, but others. Even the evil. That is a principle that God has all through the book of Romans. So we'll expand the definition of talent and we'll deal with the definition of ability. Let's rise and be dismissed.